to start doing it remotely um it's been you know i miss being around people like i love the camaraderie of the crew and the talent um and so i miss that just because it's you know you feel physically disconnected but um but like it's nice to feel productive during this time too and to be putting something out there that feels normal in a sense even though there aren't live sports going on Mm -hmm. um you know, like Monday through Friday at the normal time, like we're figuring out topics to debate every day. And, um, like, I think we've all kind of surprised ourselves. Uh, like I think that originally when this first started, we were like over under on how many weeks until we completely run out of things to talk about. And like, we've had, like, it's been rare where we have like a block piece of the show where we're like, all right, what can we, manufacturer to talk about like for the most part the shows have kind of been had a flow to them so that's been good and then you know the um the the doc helps the nfl draft happening really really helps um like the just the fact that so many people are home and trying to get FaceTime, like celebrities and athletes We've had, you know, like a big name guest every day, like at least for one segment. So besides our normal analysts, like people that we might not normally either want on the show, like just not a typical demo, or it's like not as big of a name, you know, as we would normally have in studio, because typically we're pretty picky in studio guest wise. Um, But like, they've just been really open minded right now because we're just like yearning for content. So, um, that's kind of been interesting to to see. So it could just be like a random guest, so to speak. Like maybe um, someone feels like, feels like they. Do you know who? Uh-huh. Do you know who Austin Minaj is? The comedian. Uh, yeah, yeah. From Patreon. Yeah. Ad. So yeah. So like we had him on the show today for a segment. Mm-hmm. Like, and he normal. Like I pitched him last year when he was doing Patriot Act Press. Yeah. Because uh, he's a huge NBA fan. He's been in the NBA celebrity game a couple times. Mm-hmm. Um, and and they, like, my bosses were like, no, like, not a big enough name. Like, he's just not, you know, somebody that, like, Stephen A and Max are familiar with, whatever. You know, like, they had their reasons. But, like, the, uh, you know, this happens. And then they're like, all right, let's get him on. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so it's it's been opening up other options or even just like random players that maybe aren't like pro bowlers but like um you know have a good personality yeah. like things like that uh so it's just been you know we're we're just kind of figuring it out as we go taking it like one day or a couple days at a time and um yeah yeah so what's going on in the process when choosing people well we have talent bookers mm-hmm. so um, for the most part, they'll pitch, like, do you want me to try to get X, Y, and Z? Mm-hmm. And, um, that's how it goes. Or like we, as the producers will, can reach out and be like, Hey, I had an idea. Like, can we try to get so-and-so or like if 
sometimes talent has relationships with somebody. So like Stephen A can get certain people that our talent bookers would never be able to get. Mm-hmm. Um, it's also like sometimes the, uh, cause the talent bookers have relationships with like agents and PR reps and stuff. So like the reps will pitch their guests to our talent department. Um, and then they'll pitch it to us, that kind of thing. Or like, for example, we had, we had, um, uh, Dennis Rodman on today because that was like the biggest name we knew we could get mm-hmm. for to react to the doc and like the next two episodes are are like the bad boys era and Rodman is a focus of one of, of like one of the episodes next weekend so it was like a no brainer you know we're like let's see we had Dennis Rodman on the show um, in studio when he had his thirty for thirty coming out yeah I remember that so yeah so it's like all right done let's do Rodman for this like we are we've already had him on the show so we know what we're getting so that's that's kind of how it works it's like a you know group process it's not just like a linear process how difficult is it to get MJ he doesn't do anything oh well, he he's not just even... on the jump I think it was oh nope. no 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 not the jump he was uh with uh GMA. King or someone no Robin Roberts okay yeah 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 all right. Well, you got somebody that can represent from a first-person yeah. perspective, so that's yeah. better than nothing. You know, there was a moment where everybody was playing horse. Uh, yeah. And yeah. it was, um, that was being talked about in the news, and I just remember sitting back like, really? <laughs> this is it what was, it, I, I tried to watch it, and I made it through like 10 minutes, and I was like, <laughs> I can't. I can't do it. Like, I wanted to watch something. Compatible, like sports, and I was like, "Oh no, this is not it." But meanwhile, so they've been each day, each night, like Monday through Friday, they're playing like classic um, games. So like Monday night football games, like classic games, they're airing on Mondays, and then Tuesdays, I think they're doing like classic MLB. Wednesdays, like a classic NBA, mm-hmm. you know, playoff game. So it's funny because, like, I was like, oh, I'm not going to really watch that. And then the first Monday Night Football game they did a couple weeks ago, I'm, like, on my couch looking at channels. And just it, it ha- I, when I turned on my TV, it was on ESPN already. Mm-hmm. And it was, it was the first Saints home game after Hurricane Katrina. And, um, and I just found myself, like, so captivated. I watched it until I had to go to bed. <laughs> Like, I was just so starved for any kind of game. And, like, I didn't remember, you know, what happened in that game at all. So mm-hmm. it was, like, so it was the, Steve, for the first time. Yeah, it was the Steve Gleason game. So, I, you know, I've seen that play a ton of times. Uh, but, like, the context of the whole game, no. And it was also cool to just, like, see all these older players that, you know, you kind of forget about. And, like, this is, like, when Reggie Bush was on the Saints and, like, you know, um, it was it was kind of fun just to watch it and like hearing the announcers like the the old at Monday Night Football booth and like seeing the side like just how from a production standpoint like seeing how they um you know like their graphics and how they organized the game itself and the sideline reports things like that that I I've noticed. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, and then, yeah, like, it, I didn't even mind that it, the game was from 13 years ago or 12, whatever, however many years ago. How long have you been working there with um, First Take? So I have only been on First Take about a year and a half, mm-hmm. but I've 
been at ESPN before this. I was a feature producer for like five, six years, mm-hmm. um, and then before that, I was a production assistant on like Sports Center and Outside the Lines. Mm-hmm. This is my tenth year at ESPN. August okay. will be ten years. So yeah. What was the um? What was the the climbing of the ladder like to get to this point? The what? The climbing of this ladder to get to where you are. Oh man. Um. So, started out. Uh, as a production assistant trainee is what they what they called it. It was like a seven month program where they would like hire PAs mostly like out of college. You had to take a sports quiz like over the phone to get the interview, and um, and then if you it, like it was a phone interview after that, and if you passed that, they like I I was hired based on the phone interview, and. Um, Moved to Connecticut, like, accepted the job, never even had been there before. Um, and it was, like, a seven-month, like, basically it was kind of like a temp situation. So it was set in seven months, at the end of the seven months, they would either keep you on as, like, full-time production assistant or they would let you go after seven months. So it was, like, a trial run. Like, you had to prove yourself, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and, like, I started in a group of three people the day I started every, every two weeks they would, you know, have was like when they would have new people start. So like, you know, three or four people every two weeks. Um, and the, the, I started with two other guys and neither of them got kept. So it wasn't like super easy. It wasn't like a shoe in just if you were there and did your work, it was like, you had to prove yourself. Um, and I wanted to produce features. So, um, once I was in like the PA rotation, like permanently, uh, you know, I did, I did, uh, about a year on sports center. So you're like logging games, cutting highlights, um, you know, prompting like all little things, but like you're among these sports center anchors, even watching your whole life. Like you're, you get to be in this sports bubble of an environment in Bristol, Connecticut, where there's really nothing else besides ESPN. Um, it, it's an interesting experience. And then I wanted to go into features and outside the lines, uh, like the, it was a daily afternoon show with Bob Lee at that point. And, um, and so my manager was like the coordinating producer of outside the lines. And so he said, he's like, if you want, like I can move you over to the outside the lines group. Um, and so I did that for about a year. And, like, I would help out logging interviews, like, logging feature interviews and, um, like, transcribing them and, like, putting B-roll together for the producers, like, like clipping on, like, let's say they were doing a story on um, Michael Vick. Mm-hmm. Like, I would, I would go through and get them, like, 15 minutes straight of, like, Vick highlights, Vick isos. Um, sock calls, like radio calls, mm-hmm. um, for so that for their edit, and it might be like a five minute piece, and they might use like a, like three minutes total out of that, but like just to put a reel together for them to choose from. So you start to learn, like I started to learn what was good video, what made good sound, what um, like how to how to storytell really in a in a you know visual in a television linear environment. Mm-hmm. Um, and 
then after that, I was kind of getting tired of like the really serious investigative stuff. Um, cause I really wanted to do like more like E60 player profiles, um, lighter stories. And so there was an opening, uh, for like a six month, six month rotation in the features department. So I ended up getting that and right before the six months ended, they were like short and I had, I had shadowed a couple feature producers on a shoot here and there. Um, like the two weeks before the Super Bowl, when the Giants beat the Pats, um, when it was the Pats undefeated season. Mm-hmm. That year I went to, I went with a feature producer to uh, the Meadowlands and we did interviews with like a ton of the Giants for like our Super Bowl preview show. So that was really cool. I just like observed and like got to like shadow and um, that was, like, the first time I was ever on an ESPN shoot. And then, besides the This Is Sports Center commercials, because they actually would shoot those in at ESPN, like, in the middle of the day. Like, when, like that wasn't, like, they wouldn't stage PAs, like, in the background or people in the cafeteria, whatever. Mm-hmm. That was, like, you'd be, like, walking into the cafeteria, and there's, like, you know like Benny the Bull mascot, like shooting stuff. Like it was just, you never knew what you were going to run into. I was in the background. Yeah. I was in the background of a Jason Hayward. This is sports center commercial. Um, like it's, it's funny. So like even just like as a PA, when you start, you like notice like, Oh my God, this is the hallway where the Manning brothers were kicking each other, walking down the hall. And this is sports center commercial. Like you just, it's like, you notice all these spots. So anyways, I'm getting sidetracked. So, um, I really want to do features. And then, so that was like, what, the first time I shadowed was that, uh, like end of, end of January. And then this was years ago, right? So like six or seven years ago, probably maybe eight years ago. Um, so that May there was a, um, they were Stefania Bell, who is now a really good friend of mine. It was her second feature ever. She's like our injury analyst. She has a medical background. And do you remember Nerland's Noel, the Kentucky? Yeah. So he, it was his rehab. She was doing, she got like an all access with him um, rehabbing after having his ACL surgery Mm -hmm. uh, at the Dr. James Andrews Center in, in Alabama. So they didn't have anybody, like a lot of people were on vacation because it was May. And, um, and so the bosses were like, do you think you're ready? Like, we want to send you to do a feature. And I was like, yeah, you know, like I had only been at ESPN a couple of years and like that was kind of unheard of for a, for a PA to like get to produce a feature. So I'm like, yeah, like I didn't tell Stefania that it was my very first one or the crew. I didn't mention it at all. I just pretended like I knew exactly what I was doing the whole time until after we were done and it aired. That's because I didn't want, it was her second feature. So I didn't want her to be nervous, you know, like. She, I'm this green producer so it was great like she had no idea the crew had no idea they told me after like they were like yeah no you totally would have fooled us um and so yeah we went down to Birmingham Alabama for a couple days and like shot interviews with him and the and um the the doctors and that worked with him and then um did like some all access stuff for his for his rehab and like it was it was awesome. And then it was like, 
after that, they gave me another one a couple months later. It was like, you know, and then you start to prove yourself. Um, but it's funny. I definitely dealt with imposter syndrome where I felt like, like, this wasn't what I thought I was going to go into, to be honest. Like, I started out college pre-med. So, like, I never actually <laughs> planned on this. Um, that was unexpected. Yeah. Like, I didn't know what I wanted to do, but I was always really good at math and science. Mm -hmm. So I was just like, I guess I'll do pre-med. Like, that means, like, I'll be successful, I guess, you know. <laughs> and um, I hated it. And so I just started taking classes in college that I thought sounded fun. And um, I always was a sports fan and, like, did a lot of marketing and PR. Like, I didn't even know TV production was, like, a thing you could do. Like, I never thought about it like that until I took, like, a TV production class my senior year and was like, I need to at least pursue this and see where it goes. Like, marketing will always be there. Like, I need to at least try this. Because yeah. if I don't, I'll always wonder, like, what if? Well, so years now. Mm-hmm. And then, um... So, yeah, so then when I, like, with the imposter syndrome thing, it was, like, I was very insecure about my own abilities as a storyteller and a feature producer because I was always comparing myself. And, you know, like, I'm one of the few women that I worked with and, like, it almost, I would say 90% of the time I was the only female on the shoot. And so, like, I would just feel like people, like, I doubted myself and, and felt like, because I felt like everyone was doubting me. And then my manager at the time in features, he like sat me down and he's like, listen, he's like, you're good at this. Like you need to understand that and like do your job knowing that you're good at this. And it was like a light switch for me. It was like, I just needed, I guess I needed to hear that. And from that point on, I was like, all right, like I'm doing this. And like, if I didn't know what I was doing, it was fake it till you make it. And like, that's so much of life too. Yeah. But like, it was, it just brought me to another level in terms of what I was able to do and my confidence as like a producer and directing out in the field. And so like, that was kind of the leverage point for me, I think at ESPN. Now without, um, all these accomplishments that you've obtained throughout these years, um, with the situation that the world is going through right now, are you, somewhat worried that I don't know maybe it'll all come to a sudden halt or take a unexpected turn or are you rather oh, for sure. um, confident yeah. that things will pick up at some point so I I'm a little nervous I'm I'm confident that things will work out because that's how I choose to see the world um like, I believe that, like, the energy that we put out there is what, um, is what we find. But, like, I will say that, you know, it was, the timing of this is frustrating for me because I was Stephen A's field producer, excuse me, field producer on his road shows for when we would do the, um, like, besides doing first take, like, Monday through Friday during the week, when we had our pre-game sports centers, um, NBA, I would be the field producer for him out on the road. So lots of travel, which I love, and, like, being out in the field, which I love. Um, and that 
is came to a crashing halt. And that was like my niche. You know, I was finally like getting a niche within the live TV aspect of it. Cause I, you know, before this, it was like the documentary style stuff. And so for the last year and a half, I'm back to live TV and it's, it's a completely different beast. I like it also. Um, but I was finally like in my niche in terms of like where I saw myself going in the path. Right. Mm-hmm. So, um, that is frustrating because I don't know how much longer it'll be before we're traveling to games to shoot stuff or to do our remote shows. That's like my fear is that like, just because of, um, like corporations and companies like being super, uh, conservative about where, where and how many people they send to shoot look to games and and remotes mm-hmm. um like i i just hope i can be on the road sooner than later i guess that's what i'm saying because i love the travel part of my job and love being there in the action so i miss that a lot too um but like i can't even like when i produce first take our it's it's either like in the seaport studios where we're based or the control room is actually in Bristol. So sometimes when I produce the show, if I'm, if I'm the line producer that day, there'll be occasionally like a couple days at a clip, I'll go up to Bristol and line produce from there. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause it's a little more complicated if I'm doing it from seaport. So there's three producers, three people, there's three of us that, that are able to produce line produce the show. And, um, the other two are based in Bristol. So they're actually still going in to the, to campus and to the control room. There's like six or seven people on our show total that are in the, in the office going in still. Um, and they want everyone else to like work from home. So I'm like segment producing from home. So like it's called segment producing essentially what it is. But yeah, um, that I, I am able to do from home. That's like what I would do normally if I wasn't line producing. Um, but then the other part that I'm not doing right now because of, I'm from home is like managing talent, um, and kind of coordinating that, which is, you know, all boat now. So it's more directly through the, um, control room to wherever their like home setups are to like the talent directly. But your job a hundred percent depends on the existence and activity of uh, sports and things mm-hmm. around sports. Um, yeah. Now I'm going to speak personally. Of all the sports, I love basketball. I mean, mm-hmm. I watch the others, but basketball is what I follow the most. And we were in the middle of the season, heading into the playoffs when all this happened. Yeah. And um, it's been, how long has it been? About almost two months, maybe? A month? A month now? So for us, the last the last game was March 11th. Okay. Okay. So more than a month now. And, mm-hmm. um, I thought that I would miss it a lot more than I actually do. So I guess it's a two part question. One, do you think that sports may, if this continues, may be at risk of losing its uh, relevance? And how much different do you think the American landscape will be in the absence of it? So I think it will come back. Um, I think it's too big. It's honestly too big of a part of our like culture. Um, 
to not come back. You know, like sports are kind of what people use to escape in a lot, a lot of ways. Um, and I think that like that, not having that outlet is what's been hard for a lot of people. Um, I think that like sports leagues are going to be doing everything they can to get back. So like, I know it'll be back eventually. Yeah. Like, does that answer your question? Partially. Yeah. I mean, but yeah, I guess you're, you're saying that it's going to always be relevant because yeah. of yeah. The, the role yeah. it plays in American culture. Well, I guess yes. global culture. But I guess, yeah. I guess what I'm thinking is it's kind of like um, something you think you need and can't live without until you're forced to be without it. And then you realize, oh, I actually can. You know? Yeah. Um, and I think that's, I mean, of, in regards to sports, I do miss playing. I would say that. As far as watching it and getting up in the morning and looking at the full game highlights before they delete it on YouTube. Um, I, 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 um, I can't say that, I mean, now that it's not there, I don't feel like it's gone or or I'm I'm missing anything anymore. And I just wonder if this is something that's prevalent amongst people in its absence, how would that change how sports are viewed and how people engage in it? And also from a business point of view, going forward if it's if the perception of it has changed after this as far as its level of importance so it's funny um that you said you don't miss it as much as you thought because i actually miss sports way more than i would have expected Mm -hmm. so i think it's all you know everyone's different so it's all relative but like i feel like a lot of people but even people who might not even be that into sports normally, like when it comes back, it's going to like be like appointment viewing. Mm-hmm. I think people are so starved for it right now for like any content. Um, like I'm not super worried about that. Maybe I should be. I'm just not. What about on the global market um, or internationally speaking? Like you have a lot of American sports that we're trying to get more of a grasp outside of America and those people that they were trying to connect with, you know, they they may feel like, oh, well, I was fine without it before. I don't really need to see the NFL in London or have basketball come to wherever um, because we have our primary uh, sports. Like, how much of a, a hit or a loss do you think that would be so, if the international market feels that way? So I would say that, in terms of the what you're describing, mm-hmm. like the, well, we didn't have it before kind of thing, that I don't think would happen. I think the the issue would be, like, the lack of international American sports. Mm-hmm. The hurdle there is going to be the travel restrictions because mm-hmm. of this virus and because of the pandemic. I think that's the the piece in play, mm-hmm. not the interest level, to be honest. I think that mm-hmm. the interest level, I would not expect to change. I think it's definitely more of the travel restrictions themselves. How much longer do you think it'll be before people are ready or people are allowed to get back to playing sports, even without fans and some type of control capacity? Yeah, I don't know. Um, 
you know, I think it's like, I can't answer that. Cause I just, I feel like it, the, it's constantly shifting like each, you know, so it's, it's like a moving target. Um, Adam Silver said, you know, they're not making any decisions until they, they are able to. So, you know, like there've been so many, like, I feel like the first couple of weeks it was like, well, we're going to try to start it back in June or like people, you know, like one of the owners said maybe mid May at first and then moved to June. And then there was like the idea of like, maybe they do have the playoffs like in August, but like finally, like Adam Silver just came out and said, you know, we can't even begin to have any considerations like to consider options. We're just waiting. So like, there's no use in predicting anything yet. Do you think it would be a tragedy if uh, the world of sports for 2020 was just a wash? Like it was yes. Just... Yes. Really? Yeah. Do you think it would be necessary though? Um, I think necessary is, I don't, it's, that can kind of be a subjective term. Well, okay. I'm going to give it, I'm going to give you a little yeah. peek into how I'm approaching it. Cause I'm, okay. I'm connecting pieces outside of sports to, to kind of tie it all together. And I'm looking at, I'm, I'm going to keep it specific to uh, the United States. I'm looking at the uh, federal government, the decisions that are made down to the local government, states making their own decisions and how they all are mm-hmm. not necessarily uniform. And then with that lack of uniformity, you have people like such, such as the governor in Florida that's allowing uh, people to gather on the beach. Um, and, yeah. and then it's, and you have the lack of testing and then you have the hospitals with all of the challenges and such that they have. And all of these things meshed in together, to me, sounds like a recipe for prolonging this getting back to what is quote-unquote normalcy. And which in the long run will be an issue for a lot of people to get back to work. And part of that work is um professional athletes so you you see where i'm going right well so there's a lot of americans that aren't very smart so like today i read that georgia is opening up gyms barbers hairstylists like that kind of business Mm -hmm. friday april 24th and that theaters and restaurants are following the following monday so like that's in georgia like atlanta Mm mm-hmm um, so it's so hard to tell, like, how this is going to go, to be honest. I think that, like, there are so many ways it can go from here. Um, like, Miami is, is proposing allowing, like, three-person, three, three-on-three games at the parks. Like, like, allowing people to play on teams of three mm-hmm. basketball in the parks. Like, having that be allowed again. So, like, I, I don't know. Like, but, I'm not an epidemiologist. No, no, so I, I, feel I get like that. I get, it's just a, yeah. I'm asking more or less about your feeling about the world around you and then how it affects you professionally. And professionally, it's, it's the world of sports. And right. that affects everyone that's involved in it as well. Because in, if they don't get back, you don't get back to what you, you're, norm, you, you're used to doing. And they can get back if the rest of the country doesn't get back to where it needs to be because I imagine yeah. there's no testing for these three on three games in Miami. 
I mean, oh yeah, that's just like at neighborhood parks. I think that like sports, pro sports leagues will mm-hmm. get back before the rest of the world. You think does. so? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Even, uh, but with significant changes, or you think it'll go back to being the same? Yes. No, I think that like definitely it would be like you know testing ahead of time, people getting their temperatures taken, no fans first. And, like, any crew or people there, mm-hmm. you know, temperatures taken and all that. And, like, highly monitored. But I I think that that is going to be the first step. Would it be yeah. strange for you if they were to allow games to, to take place without fans? Oh, for sure. Mm-hmm. I think it'll be really weird because that's, like, such a... It's like a part, like a character. Like if you're, if the athletes are their own characters in the story, like the audience is a character for sure. Mm-hmm. So it's it's like part of the um, experience of watching a game and and um, being at a game. It was funny because I I forget who it was um, on ESPN, but somebody was saying that like if they do, I, I think it was, it, oh, I, it was Rachel Nichols. And she was saying on the jump that like, um, you know, she was, I think she was like interviewing like Paul Pierce. They were talking about would, how he would have felt playing without fans. Mm-hmm. She was like, now she's like, I know she's like, I'm on the sidelines all the time. Like they're going to have to have somebody bleeping stuff out <laughs> like their hand on the buzzer because like the fans kind of drown out that noise on the yeah. TV camera. If it's an empty gym, like, somebody's going to have to have their hands on a buzzer and, like, a five-minute delay. Like, so that's kind of funny. Like, I didn't even think about it like that. But, um, it, yeah, I think that, like, leagues are going to be doing – and because it's it's a money thing, too. Like, let's be honest. Like, this is billions of dollars in play here. Um, like, they're, gonna, they're doing everything they can to get back as soon as possible without risking – you mentioned the money aspect and the uh, money. Are, are you still with me? Mm-hmm. Okay. Cause I, it sounded like you went off for a second and the money comes, the revenue comes from the fans for the most part and they're patron, you know, they're patronizing the sport. Um, well, it also comes from media yeah, deals media as well. Licensing what, deals. I'm just thinking about the fans returning, but under this situation, a lot of people have lost jobs and have lost money. Do you think that there would be um, an adjustment in the prices that fans would have to pay in order to return to um, attending these events? I really can't. That's like not a really question I could answer. Do you think there should be? Um, I haven't really thought about that. Like, I think that, like, I honestly don't know. We don't know if, like, they're going to pack arenas at all anymore. Like, and the, like, it's going to be so different when things go back to normal. The Like, the economy is going to be so different. Like, there's just, it's it, it's too early to, to answer that when we don't even know how they're coming back yet, you know? I mean, everything at this point is just speculation, be it, yeah. you know, people on TV or people like myself. It's just nobody really knows what's going on because those that are making decisions are planning it by ear as well. But uh, Yeah. And I just don't feel comfortable speculating on that kind of thing. I feel you. I understand. 
Um, outside of um, just the your professional realm, how has this impacted you personally? You know, like I live alone in a 450 square foot apartment in New York. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's been interesting just that, you know, this is like the epicenter in this country, obviously. <laughs> um, Florida says, hold my beard. so it's been it's been challenging but I think because knowing that it's been that it is and will be such a challenge like when it when we this started I knew like I'm a very social person I'm really outgoing and extroverted so I knew going in it was almost like I faced myself Mm -hmm. mentally like this is going to be tough like I have made it it like the like me doing yoga every day and like going on runs several times a week like that is not and that's non-negotiable for me just for like my mental health through this but I know I have to do that I know I have to talk to other people like on FaceTime and the phone like I would say because I have friends kind of all over spread out around the country and um and my family's in California I think what's interesting is because it, I, it's so important for me to feel connected with other human beings. What I think has been interesting is that I've been talking to my friends way more often, friends and family way more often than I ever did before this, because it's, I'm, it's, I'm doing it with so much intention on a daily basis, knowing that that's like my lifeline to like feeling okay. Um, and so that's kind of been a positive out of this whole thing like I I FaceTime friends every day and like just reconnected with like some friends that, like I haven't talked to in months but like we did like a group FaceTime and now we do that every Friday and so it's things like that that it's been like really refreshing what about um you said that New York is the epicenter <laughs> of this whole situation in, in the states yeah uh, does that make you feel a certain kind of way when you go out? I, I imagine you go out, you, are you wearing a mask or? So, or? yeah, I started wearing a mask a couple of days ago. Yeah. Um, I think Saturday they started requiring it in public places where social distancing isn't possible. Uh-huh. Um, and so that was actually like, like mentally really hard, like psychologically, that's been like the hardest part. Cause it's like, okay, this is really real now. Um, uh, to be honest, I'm not super worried about myself getting it. Like, I'm really, I have no underlying conditions. I'm in good shape. Mm-hmm. My fear would be not being careful and somehow spreading it to somebody else who isn't in an optimal health situation. So, like, that's where my fear would be, not necessarily for myself. Have you come across any of the uh, anti-social distancing protesters? No, no. New York is not about that life. <laughs> not at all. What's your take on uh, on that group? I mean, you don't have to, you know. Oh my get... god, they're 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 morons. That <laughs> okay, you can get personal. <laughs> no, like I mean, come on, like it's it's maddening, really. Well, what about their message? <laughs> The message is selfishness. Mm-hmm. Well, they would like, say otherwise. What if I think I think it's the biggest slap in the face to all like the medical workers and essential workers that are actually like holding this country together at the seams right now. Um, 
And like, I also look at like, you look at these pictures and they're all white people with guns and, and like, you know, and like masks sometimes like imagine if they were not white, like how different people would be treating it. Hey, I'm, I'm even reluctant to wear a homemade mask because I'm not white. So yeah, we talked about that. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I my, my boss, my boss is uh-huh. black and he was joking that he should get hazard pay on top of whatever else. Just because he's black going to work through office. <laughs> you know? So like yeah, that is it's it's a different experience depending on your race right now, for yeah. sure. But I tried to um when I saw the the story about these protesters, immediately I thought, What? And then I thought, okay, you know what? I'm gonna try to look at it from another person's perspective before I jump to conclusions. And the, yeah. the, the argument is, you know, uh, quality of life, I think, for the most part. Yeah, people are scared about not being able to, to be able to pay for food and support their families. Um, like, there's a lot of people without jobs right now. I completely yeah. understand that. But, like, that's not the way. Yeah, but where it was making me go, the question that brought up was, would they be doing this if the government were better prepared and providing more to take care of its citizens in this time. Exactly. No, no. It's all, it's all anxiety, economic anxiety. But that's also the reasoning that like a lot of people, people in quotes, um, Mm -hmm. used to vote for Trump was economic anxiety. So, um, which I think is more of a euphemism than anything else. So, (laughs) You you mentioned um, you're you're in touch with your friends a lot more. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think this is something that'll carry on beyond this um, this quarantine, this lockdown? Once everything. Yeah, I think so. What other things? I hope so. What other things have you, I guess, uh, practiced a little bit more that you appreciate that you you want to hold on to? Um, you know, I've like kind of gotten back into doing art. <laughs> Uh, I'm cooking way more than I ever normally do because I'm buying everything at the grocery store. Mm-hmm. And of the things that you're cooking, if you could only take two recipes with you going forward and nothing else, what would they be? <laughs> <laughs> um, I made a bomb chicken marsala from scratch the other day. Like, really, really good. Like, I even surprised myself. Well, that's good. And what do you fear going forward from a social aspect? I don't know. I don't know if I have an answer for that. I've been, what do you fear going forward? Well, I, I don't know if it's necessarily fear, but I'm, I'm more curious. I think this whole thing just emphasizes the weaknesses of the chinks in the armor of the countries that it, it's affecting and it's, it's making these things stronger and more evident. And yeah. I wonder if those things would be prevalent at the end of all of this. That's one of the things I'm worried about. Yeah, it's definitely exposed a lot for sure. Yeah. Going forward, uh, we won't know where we are in the next eight to ten months or even to a year. And uh, with everything that you've gained and everything you've learned and insight, what would you like to remind your future self to hold on to or advice you would give your future self later on? Um, I 
That's good. Um, I would say that to remember how beneficial it is to slow down sometimes and to do things with your hands, to cook, to make art, um, to not always feel like you have to be productive in every single minute of every single day. Thank you.